actually, I, I want to start this evening uh, by doing a little experiment, not the kind of experiment that Martin's colleagues might have done to understand uh, the post-human future. Um, uh, much harder than that. No, much simpler than that. In a moment, I'm uh, going to set my, I'm going to watch my clock for 15 seconds. And I want to ask if you would just indulge me and uh, close your eyes for 15 seconds and see if you can work out what emotion or emotions you might be feeling right now. Okay, um, ready and go. Okay, that's, that's time up. How did it go? Uh, perhaps you were sitting there feeling a sort of stage fright, not having any emotions whatsoever, uh, or perhaps a kind of eggy embarrassment for the whole situation of having to sit there with your eyes closed. Uh, perhaps there was a, a faint sort of worry about that text message you just sent, or, or perhaps an anticipation of something that was about to happen uh, later on this evening. Perhaps you were uh, feeling the wonderful Welsh word, huil, uh, which is the word for boat sails and describes the kind of exuberance and high spirits you might get at a gathering uh, such as this. Or perhaps you felt all kinds of emotions and all at once. There are some emotions which do wash the world in a single colour, like that terror uh, that's felt as a car skids. Uh, but more often our emotions crash and jumble together uh, until sometimes it's very hard to tell them apart. Some slip by before we've even notice like that sort of temporary comfort that might make you reach out and grab a familiar brand at the supermarket. Uh, and then there are others which we hurry away from fearing they'll burst upon us like the jealousy which might make you want to search a loved one's uh, pockets. And then there are some emotions which are so peculiar and so strange uh, that we don't even know uh, what to call them. I mean, perhaps you were sitting there with a little twitch and a desire for an emotion called illinx. Uh, this emotion is the sort of pleasure and excitement that you might get after causing a small act of, uh, of destruction. Oh, sorry. Uh, 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 an act of destruction. For example, if you stood up right now and threw the contents of your bag all over the floor, and it would create a sort of sense of exuberance and excitement. Uh, perhaps, perhaps you're, you're feeling gezelligheid, uh, which is a Dutch word, which means feeling cosy and comforted in the company of friends, particularly uh, when it's cold outside. Uh, perhaps you're even feeling this. <laughs> we, uh, we live in an age which is often uh, called a kind of a touchy-feely sort of age. And actually, if you looked at the news today, you might have noticed that the results are in on the latest uh, index on happiness uh, to work out which is the happiest place in the UK to live. Uh, and this isn't a sort of uh, pop psychology exercise. Um, this is uh, that happiness is being measured as, as, as an index of, of something called well-being. So this is a government-led uh, initiative to understand the well-being of us in, here in the UK. Um, now, at the centre of this new touchy-feely age is, a, is an idea of, called emotional intelligence. Uh, emotional intelligence is about being able to identify your feelings, recognise those of other people, and being able to put a name on them. Uh, what I hope you just realised when you did that mini-experiment at the beginning of the talk uh, is that sometimes it's not really that easy to, to tell what you're feeling at, a, at any given moment. Um, in fact, sometimes it's not that easy to know even what an emotion really is. Um, so as you, as you heard, I'm, I'm an academic. Uh, but if you'd asked me 10 years ago uh, what I would be doing now, I, I mean, this wouldn't have been the, <laughs> this wouldn't have been in the picture. Um, so 10 years ago, I was a theatre director, 
And I thought about emotions every day. They were part of my work every day, uh, thinking about how to convey the, the boredom of a Russian aristocrat or, 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 the, um, or the pain and the, and the fury of, of a Greek heroine. Um, about 10 years ago, I decided to do a PhD, and, and truth be told, I was really doing it to buy myself some time to figure out what to do instead. But during that time, I came across a, a kind of remarkable collection of, of researchers uh, who were calling themselves the Center for the History of the Emotions. And, and the name just completely captivated me. I mean, the history of emotions. What does it mean for something as, as sort of basic and primal um, and timeless uh, and essential as, as something like love or fear or, or hatred uh, to have a history, to change over time. I thought this concept was, was entirely uh, intriguing and actually I've worked at the Centre for the History of Emotions uh, ever since. Um, I, I wonder if anyone uh, actually has seen the new Pixar movie. I can't sadly see you all terribly well, but could you put your hand up if you've seen the new Pixar movie Inside Out? Okay, so a fair, a fair smattering. Um, okay, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, go and see it. It's really great. <laughs> um, and and uh, I'm going to just quickly tell you about it. So this is the story of a, an 11-year-old girl called Riley. And, and the main characters are her emotions. And there are five of them. And I, hopefully I'm going to remember them. There's uh, happiness, uh, joy, uh, sadness, disgust, fear, and anger. Uh, now, you might recognize this sort of idea that the great uh, complex architecture of our emotional lives can be reduced down to a handful of primary or basic emotions. You might recognize this idea because it's actually been knocking around for quite a long time. Uh, since about the 1970s, evolutionary psychologists, um, most famously um, Paul Ekman, uh, have been suggesting that it's possible to, to reduce the complexity of our emotions down to a, sort of a few what are called basic emotions emotions. Uh, these emotions are thought to be basic uh, because uh, their outward signs, their physiological responses, are thought to be common to all people at all times. So these are universal emotional responses. Um, critically, the, the point of, uh, of these universal emotions is that they've evolved to protect us from harm. Um, and, and this is why they're felt in the same or expressed in the same way by all people at all times. Uh, now, this is a, a persuasive idea and a very important one. Um, however, the definition of emotion that it suggests is, I think, quite misleading. Um, to say that an emotion is just a set of physiological responses isn't really a very good description of what an emotion is. Emotions are far more complex, as we all know, than that. And they also include, uh, a, a very importantly, include a subjective uh, element. Um, what I've become interested in is the influence of, of our culture on this subjective element. Uh, the influence of our, of our spiritual beliefs, our philosophical ideas, um, our expectations about gender and age and ethnicity, uh, even our um, economies uh, and um, our, our politics on the way we learn to think about our feelings and therefore on the way in which we feel our emotions themselves. Um, and these cultures, can change quite dramatically sometimes over time. Uh, so uh, let, me, let me tell you a story. Uh, it is set uh, in, the, um, in, in the late uh, 17th century uh, in a, a, a town, Basel in Switzerland, in a garret, a student garret. And inside the garret there is a, a student. Uh, and he's, he's a long way away from home. Now, we don't know his name anymore, uh, but we do know that he was living 
far from home, about 30 miles, which today wouldn't seem very much at all, but at that time seemed like quite a distance. Now, the student was a very... Um, uh, a diligent student and, and was quite isolated, locked himself away with his books. Uh, and, and, and as time went on, he became rather morose, uh, rather withdrawn. Then he seemed to not be able to eat properly or sleep. Uh, then he became delirious. And then strange sores and pustules broke out on his body. I mean, it was so serious that the doctors thought he was going to die and prayers were said for him in church. And it was only when a local apothecary uh, came to see the young man uh, and suggested that really he should be, he should be taken home uh, that people started to realise what was going on. Even as the, boy was, the young man was lifted onto a stretcher, his, his breathing became less laboured. By the time he had reached the gates of his hometown, his symptoms had almost entirely vanished. The doctors realised that what the young man was suffering from was a very extreme, very powerful form of homesickness. It was so powerful that it could have killed him. And he wasn't the only one to suffer from this very dangerous homesickness at this time. In fact, there were many cases cropping up all over Europe, particularly among um, soldiers who were commissioned to fight, fight abroad. Um, a young medical student uh, brought together the cases and, and decided that the illness needed a name. And he called it nostalgia, from nostos, homecoming, and algos, pain. Uh, over the next 200 years, nostalgia became one of the most important, most studied illnesses in Europe. Uh, English people thought they didn't get nostalgia because they were very familiar with the idea of travelling abroad because of the empire. But even in the 18th century, then we, cases began to crop up in England and Scotland and in Wales too. Um, by the 19th century, nostalgia was one of the most studied illnesses uh, and the last person to die of nostalgia died in 1918. He was, a, he was a French soldier fighting in the First World War. So we can't die of nostalgia anymore. Um, it is astonishing, I think, that in less than 100 years, nostalgia hasn't only changed its meaning, so not a longing for home, but perhaps a longing for a time that, that has passed, uh, but also... Um, Homesickness itself has, has changed uh, in terms of its severity. Uh, you might have died from homesickness less than 100 years ago now. Perhaps you might feel homesickness, but you also perhaps might feel like you don't really want to admit to feeling it in case you're thought to be a bit of a, a wimp. So, so what quite happens, um, well, historians are, are not quite sure, really. Uh, perhaps it was the coming of the, of the railways, which meant it was easier for people to get home and, and get back to their loved ones. Um, uh, perhaps it was a whole new set of, 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 of values and ideas that come in with, at the beginning of the 20th century about modernity, with this kind of restless desire to travel and explore, and constant change, which makes it seem perhaps a little bit... Um, uh, sort of hidden to you may, perhaps makes you want to hide an idea that you might be wanting to be drawn back to the past, be drawn back to the comforts uh, of your home. Um, now, nostalgia or homesickness isn't the only emotion to have, have changed quite radically in its values and ideas, um, you know, when we look at the history of emotions. Uh, happiness today, I've just mentioned the happiness index. Uh, happiness is a great prized emotion of our time. It's something that we apparently all ought to be seeking out. It's apparently very good for our, for our health, for, uh, for, um, for helping us to live longer, apparently very good for our relationships and our success at work. Um, all sorts of claims have been made for happiness. Uh, actually, if you, if you look to the 16th century, um, 
Self-help authors were encouraging people to be sad. Uh, sadness uh, and melancholy and, and sort of a moroseness was, was really an important emotion at this time because it was, it was more humble, it was more God-fearing, um, and it encouraged a better attitude towards life's vicissitude. So, of course, today, reasons to be somber is not going to make the sort of top ten self-help book bestseller list. Uh, but at that time, it, it was part of, the, of, the, of a self-help manual. Um, uh, when we um, when we think uh, not just uh, not just thinking about the the way the values uh, change uh, have changed over time, but also the way that those values also influence the way we experience our emotions. So perhaps if you feel sad today, you might perhaps feel a little bit impatient or sense that other people want you to to snap out of it. Perhaps in the 16th century, if you'd felt sad, you might have also felt a little bit smug and wanted to sort of demonstrate your sadness. And so it can really, I think, that the values that we impose on our emotions can really change um, the way, our subjective experience of them. I mean, they in fact can even change our reflex responses. Um, in the 11th century, knights, so brave men, could, could faint out of dismay. Uh, and in the 13th century, uh, troubadours yawned because they were in love, Whereas today we'd only yawn out of contempt or boredom or tiredness or, or maybe fear. Um, uh, but yawning out of love, I think, is a, is a very strange and unexpected sort of response. Now, it's not only when we look back in time that we can see these, the changes in our emotional cultures. Also, when we look um, across the globe, we can see um, quite surprising and, and interesting and important uh, differences. Um, the, uh, the baning of, of Papua New Guinea uh, described this emotion, a wombuk. This is a kind of feeling of, of, of inertia uh, and, and distraction, uh, which comes when a, when a much-loved house guest departs. And actually, the only way that you can get rid of a wombuk is by leaving a bowl of water uh, out in the corner of the room overnight, and then the bowl of water will absorb the wombuk, and then in the morning you throw the water away, and, and then you are relieved of, the, of this, uh, this wombuk. The Russians uh, speak of Tosca, a kind of maddening feeling of dissatisfaction, which is said to blow in from the great plains and their endless, uh, endless space. Uh, this is one of my, my favorite emotions that I, I've discovered as, uh, as I've been working on this book. Um, Amae, this is a Japanese word, um, and it's actually very hard to describe in English. Uh, it describes a kind of held and comforted feeling uh, that you get uh, when you're able to sort of hand over the reins uh, of your life to someone else temporarily uh, and to sort of abs absolve you from having to sort of make any decisions or take responsibility for yourself. Um, in, in Japan, this word is very common. It's used in all sorts of different contexts and it's instantly recognizable. Here, it took me a sentence, not very eloquent one, to try and describe what it means and I probably haven't even quite got there yet. So why is it possible that in one country, one emotion is so prized and so important that it's given a name. And then in English, that emotion seems to be completely missing from the lexicon. Um, now, some anthropologists and linguists suggest that uh, perhaps this is because of Japan's traditionally collectivist culture, which, which, which prizes and emphasizes forms of interdependence, whereas at least in the last 300 years or so, um, Western culture has emphasized self-sufficiency and individuality, and so this kind of emotional experience might have faded into the background. Uh, and perhaps that's true, perhaps that's a little bit simplistic, but I think it's very intriguing, oh, the kinds of emotions which are missing from our 
language because it tells us not just about our emotions but also quite a lot about ourselves. I think I've run out of time, so that's, that, that's for me. Thank you.